Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf, recording in my home office with uh, probably a special guest appearance from a cat or two, maybe some wild parrots next door here in Los Angeles. <laughs> Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm very excited to have actor Elizabeth Marvel here with us. Hi. Hi. For those of you who would like a little This Is Your Life rundown of uh, Elizabeth's <laughs> career, I've got one for you. Uh, Elizabeth was raised in Pennsylvania before spending time in Michigan to train at the Interlochen Arts Academy, and then she moved to New York City to start to study at Juilliard. From there, she launched her acting career in the New York theater scene, winning multiple Obie Awards. She most recently starred as Goneril in the Glenda Jackson-led production of King Lear, and as Mark Anthony in the public theater's groundbreaking production of Julius Caesar. Her first big foray into television came in the crime procedural The District, but you've likely seen and admired her in Law and Order, Nurse Jackie, 30 Rock, the, the Good Wife, The Newsroom, Homeland, House of Cards, and Fargo, so many others. In film, Elizabeth has starred in the Myrovitz stories, True Grit, Burn After Reading, Lincoln, Born Legacy, A Most Violent Year, and The Land of Steady Habits, again, among many others. And this past year, she also appeared in Netflix's heartbreaking series, Unbelievable. Now she's set to star in Hellstrom, a 10-episode Marvel Hulu series where she plays Victoria Hellstrom, a demonic mother whose children take a different path, killing people like her. Later this year, she'll also <laughs> co-star with Tom Hanks and Paul Greengrass's News of the World. So um, a lot of things on the horizon, and uh, I believe Hellstrom probably has the most in common with what we're going to be talking about today, because your, mo your movie choice, Elizabeth, is The Wailing. Can you give us a little explanation on why this is one of your fave genre films? Um, well, you know, I, this movie is so bananas. I, I love it so much. I used it as a reference when doing Hellstrom because in Hellstrom, I play a demon. Um, I play the demon. And so when I was doing research, I watched Wailing because there's a demon in it, a fantastic demon and uh, Possession and you know many many other great films where you get to see great great actors uh embodying the demonic um mm -hmm. so i had recently rewatched it and fell in love with it all over again it's so it's also so brilliant how this director um moves between genres you know that it starts off sort of a buddy cop comedy yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like yes. moves into a possession film exorcism and then ends up and then for a while you're in a zombie film and it just it it keeps the ground keeps shifting under you as an audience member and I also feel like it is it it's so of our moment this film is so of the moment we're kind of psychically in because there's like there's no cultural unification there's no philosophical unification mm -hmm. um there the there's a priest and there's a shaman and they don't join forces they're like no one unites no one unifies everyone sort of breaks apart and everyone is lost and mm -hmm. uh and it, it ultimately is a film about faith um and i know that the filmmaker is a christian and uh is a 
pretty serious Bible reader. And one thing that you that you mentioned before I get into the synopsis here is that there is a kind of like biblical sense to this, an allegorical sense. It does feel like a Bible story. And part of that is because the structure is really fucking strange. It is not a normal structure. And you'll notice that as I go into the synopsis that I'm about to read. So, um, (laughs) I know for those of you who haven't seen the whaling today's episode, obviously we'll give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch the whaling first, this is your shot. It's on shutter for those people who are subscribing. And here we are. Written and directed by Na Hong Jin for release in 2016, The Wailing stars Kwok Dalwan as bumbling police officer and philandering family man Zhang Gu. We meet him after a strange and horrific murder takes place. The assailant is covered in a strange rash and seems almost a zo- like a zombie. Zhang Gu's partner, Seong Buk, suggests it has something to do with the Japanese man who showed up in town recently, the stranger. At the scene of another terrible murder in which a woman killed all her family members, Jong-gu meets a mysterious woman called No Name in English, who tells him the, the Japanese man who is a demonic ghost caused the murders. Jong-gu and Seong-buk force a guy who encountered this ghost in the forest to show them to the ghost's house. But the guy gets zapped by lightning (laughs) and the officers have to return with the deacon. I totally forgot that it happened. The officers have to return with a deacon who can speak Japanese. When they get to the house, the ghost is gone, but they find a terrible shrine with photos of the murdered and murderers, including a shoe that belongs to Jonggu's daughter, Hyojin, who's been deathly ill lately and only recently recovered as though nothing had happened. Jong-gu threatens to kill the Japanese man if he doesn't leave. They call in a shaman, Il-gwang, played by Huang Jung-min, to perform a death hex against the demon, which severely disables the Japanese man, but which Jong-gu stops early because his daughter is in severe pain. So the stranger, he huddles in his bed to recover and finds the no-name woman standing outside his home. Next day, Jong-gu gets a posse together, kills an infected person at the Japanese man's house, then chases him off a cliff, and eventually the man falls on their windshield as they drive away, and then they toss that ghost right off the cliff. Then, you see the no-name woman watching them from afar. Hyojin seems to recover, so they bring her home. Il-gwang tries to visit Jong-gu, but encounters no-name woman, who makes his nose gush blood. Il-gwang flees and tries to tell Jung-gu that no-name woman is the real demon who must be destroyed. But Jung-gu runs into her, and what she's saying actually seems to be pretty convincing. She says that Il-gwang is actually in on it with the head demon, and she's set a trap that will actually stop Ho-jing and the ghost as long as Jung-gu doesn't run home right now. Meanwhile, the deacon figures out that the Japanese man wasn't actually killed when they tossed him off the cliff, and he hunts him down. Jong-gu ultimately doesn't listen to no name, and Hyojin murders the entire family. The Japanese man reveals himself, uh, his real demon form, to the to the deacon, and Il-gwang shows up at Jong-gu's house to take photos of the crime scene after the whole family's been murdered. We see he has a whole collection of crime scene photos. He was in a, on it the whole time. <laughs> okay. Um... That's kind of the end. And there's also an alternate ending that they completely deleted because it was a little bit too much. But 
Um, something that I wanted to get into is the kind of inspiration that Nong Jin had when um, when writing this movie and, and developing it, um, because it's about kind of the an exploration of the kind of randomness of death. Um, and when we think of death um, has, you know, a morality to it. He said, quote, several deaths of my close acquaintances followed one another. Attending a funeral had become rather a common ordeal for me, but it felt much worse back then. The deceased were my close friends and in no way felt like a common experience. Unfortunately, their deaths were not of natural causes, leaving those who are left behind all the more sorrowful. Funerals usually last three days in Korea, and all throughout those days I pondered about their deaths. The questions raised during those uh, days coincided with things I have always been wondering while making my previous films. The question was, why did they have to be victims of all people? I already had the answers for the how. What I had to find out was the why. So I began to meet and talk to the clergy of various religions, which was the starting point of this film." End quote. So, you know, you're talking about earlier the kind of the Christianity of it, the the research of this. Mm. And it's a it's a fascinating thing to think that there's he's trying to impose like almost a moral structure onto the story of like this is why these people are being punished, but there is no morality. That's they right. just Well, it die. and it uh, absolutely. And also I something that struck me it may have been in the same interview that you were quoting where uh Nahong Jin says uh, that he his question was, is there a God? And if there mm -hmm. is, would he always be good? Mm -hmm. And A, mm -hmm. he sets up the failure of the patriarchy with that question <laughs> right off the bat, which is ultimately yeah. something that I think he's exploring as well in this film, because it ends with the father, not head on, but it ends with the father rocking the daughter saying, daddy will fix it, it's all right, after the mm -hmm. daughter has murdered everyone and there is no you know, daddy can't fix it. it daddy mm -hmm. actually broke it. And mm -hmm. daddy is the reason why it keeps continuing on. The The father is the reason for the continuation of the violence and the chaos and the yes, destruction. Yes, absolutely. So that's interesting. But, but also when you break down, I mean, there are so many biblical allusions to the first shot is the, the actor, Jun... Kunimura, um, who I, I just love him so much. And he's oh. fishing on a riverbank. He's baiting a hook and fishing. So we begin with, you know, the Jesus imagery of being a fisher of men. And he's mm -hmm. setting up the demon as the fisher of men. And so you begin in this place of like Jesus and the demon are, are, opposite sides of the same coin. And then if you yeah. follow the, the, who is the, you know, the, the Japanese stranger is how he's described in the film. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that goes into like a whole, there, there are cultural signifiers about Korea and Japan that I can't unpack because I don't fully understand the complicated history there. Yeah. So I can't really get into that. But. It's a funny thing because Nahong Jin would say like in interviews, he's like, oh, I didn't mean any of right. that. And it's but just I, like, are you serious? Because like I, colonial I, rule of Japan, <laughs> like it kind of seems. Well, there, and there's so many, so many obvious <laughs> things with the camera and the make of the camera. There are just so many little statements that are made, I think allusions that are made. But, you know, if you ask my Korean friends, my Japanese friends would argue with him that that it is free of cultural signifiers but but i i can't speak to that but but that being said i can 
speak to the the biblical illusions that that run through the entire film so and and then so if you follow the demon and this this sort of christ-like imagery of him fishing from the riverbank and how that comes back later with the young deacon the priest because i guess in korea the two dominant religions are catholicism and buddhism um, yeah and and they definitely run through this whole film the demon is at one point said to have been uh, had been a buddhist priest who had sort of transformed um mm -hmm. and then we have the shaman later which is amazing um and there's this young uh deacon introduced midway through the film the the cop's partner's nephew is a is a catholic deacon who enters the story and he you know he talks to the priest uh once the the young daughter is possessed and they are told that he's just fishing he's he's baiting a hook and seeing the demon and yeah. seeing what he catches and then at the very end when the deacon finally goes to the demon's cave that he's hidden off in the hills in and he yeah. asks him to show him his true form and he says you know i'm the devil and he holds out his hand and he says touch me and you see the stigmata in the palm of his hand and it's so it's such a mind fuck because also the thing that's so fascinating is the film opens we didn't we didn't read the quote i'll read the quote it's from luke 24 oh, yeah. the first elizabeth has notes i love I this have notes. i have notes you have to with this movie you have to have like fucking monstrous cliff notes for this fucking movie it's, no it's like the fucking demonic odyssey this movie but it starts with a quote with a black screen from luke 24 37 which is in reference to Jesus after he's resurrected, going to his faithful, his true believers and saying, uh, well, it says they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost, which was the Christ. And the Christ says to them, why are you troubled? And why do you have doubts in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And that's where we begin with this movie. And then yeah. the first shot is this actor, this man on a riverbank yeah. fishing, baiting a hook and fishing. And then that is the first yeah. gesture. And there, and then there we begin. And then the next scene is the cop who is our, our protagonist, our protagonist for... that we follow. And he's, yeah. he's dressing in the dark. So he's fumbling around in, in the dark, which I think is, another. this is, I, this is so okay. I have to ask because you are clearly a very um, engaged movie watcher. Like you're, like I can tell obviously from what you've said about possession before we started recording or this is just like you're very engaged. And I'm wondering, in terms of being an actor, is that how you are when you're when you're in something, or do you yes. only reserve that for when you're being kind of a no. a, a more passive? No, you know, I started as a visual artist that was my background and my interest and my passion yeah but um i was a total fuck up as a young person <laughs> and, got, <laughs> and got kind of incidentally rerouted because basically i was at a school for the arts and i wanted to go into fiber and metal work maybe sculpture that was my passion i'd always been a mm -hmm. drawer so i'm a very visual person um but i didn't get my shit together to complete my portfolio in time Anyway, that's a whole 
sidebar. <laughs> That's a sidebar. Um, but that is to say that, yes, I do uh, first uh, engage visually. When I'm working, too, it's it's always, I, I on sets, I go straight to the DP, often to director's frustration. <laughs> I go straight to the DP. Um, I also am, I always want to understand how a shot's being lit. Because, you mm -hmm. know, it just tells you what the space is in which you're working and what, what the, once you understand the frame, you know what the story is. You know what you need to do in the frame. Yeah. It's not a mystical thing. It's not There's a mystical a... thing. <laughs> it's a technical thing. And it's a visual thing. It's a visual thing. It's a visual technical thing it, to me. Um, but it's the same on stage. You know, I, I love working with the designers, whatever, whoever the designers are. I want to work with a lighting designer. I want to understand my body in space and mm -hmm. what, what it means when I hold space. Um, so... Yeah, I also, honestly, I don't, we grew up without TV. I'm not a, I'm, I don't watch a lot, but what I do watch, I completely concentrate on. I mean, that's kind of against the grain, I think, in terms of <laughs> viewership right I, now. I, I'd I think say. that's true. I think, yes, it's true. I, uh, yeah, I, yes, I, I'm a, I'm more of a reader, but I do love to watch movies and I do love, love horror movies. I think it's because I was raised Quaker, so it's like weird Quaker backlash that I love horror movies. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know, another I random mean, sidebar about me. Yes, yes. That was great. I mean, I was raised Catholic, so that's oh. why I'm in no horror movies. Yeah. Uh, we're going to yeah, take a quick yeah, yeah. break. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more of the whaling and also Elizabeth's other multiple projects. We'll be right back. Video games. Video games. Video games. You like them? Maybe you wish you had more time for them. Maybe you want to know the best ones to play. Maybe you want to know what happens to Mario when he dies. <laughs> In that case, you should check out Triple Click. It's a podcast about video games. A podcast about video games? But I don't have time for that. Sure you do. Once a week, Kickback as three video game experts give you everything from critical takes on the hottest new releases to scoops, interviews, and explanations about how video games work to fascinating and sometimes weird stories about the games we love. Triple Click is hosted by me, Kirk Hamilton. Me, Jason Shire. And me, Maddie Myers. You can find Triple Click wherever you get your podcasts and listen at MaximumFun.org. Bye! Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Elizabeth Marvel, and we're talking about the whaling. Um, I think we should mention the place where this is is set is um, yeah. Gok Song, mm -hmm. and it is it's both it's the name of a town, but it's also the word for the sound of crying, which was where we get the whaling, and it, and it doubles. And um, the way that um, uh, Na talks about it is um, is a quote: "It's my grandmother's hometown, and I spent a lot of time there when I was young." Gok Song is a place where Catholics who were persecuted in the North smuggled down to and finally were martyred there. I used to go around to play, holding on to priests' hands, and my grandmother and her friends were all involved in the church. When I was young, the real elders wore traditional colos. They didn't take public transportation. They had to walk. We couldn't even look them in the eye. That was tradition. It was very important to me then where the film took place. It talks about the supernatural of 
feeling it around you and the truth. And Guksung is a place where you can get a feeling of religion and the supernatural. I thought it would be a good place to talk about Korean ghosts and gods showing the changes in time and weather, end quote. Oh, how cool. And, wow. you know, like, I think that yes. was really important to him of like where he wanted to have um, his actors placed and what kind of performance he wanted to get. And, and I think that that is, you know, quite, um, I guess, gracious to his actors to put him, to put them in that location. You know, I'm curious for you, um, you know, we're, we're talking about this, lo like this beautiful location, all these things, these, these um, elements that kind of get the actors in this space. Mm. Have you had a moment before where you've been working in an environment that, that really fed it in the same way that, that these actors are getting here? Mm. Um, interesting question. Uh, yes, but I think in a very different way. I remember, um, when I shot the Meyerowitz stories, which is a movie I made with Noah Baumbach, who, uh, who I have nothing but the best things to say about. I enjoyed my time with Noah so much. And uh, it was such a wacky group of actors. Um, we, were, we played a family and Dustin Hoffman was our father. And uh, it was me and um, Adam Sandler and uh, Ben and we were uh, siblings and we, we spent a lot of time our first two weeks of shooting in this townhouse that was mm -hmm. on the Upper East and it was incredibly tight and um, suffocating and cluttered and old and dusty and uh, it really, um, I kept finding myself finding little corners to sit in and I, I would kind of just mold into the wall and it really informed my <laughs> my sense of space as the character you know it was really really helpful yeah. that I just kind of kept finding myself like molding into these little nooks and corners and disappearing and then because of that I found my my voice even shifting up here and like get so it was uh it, the the environment definitely transformed my my person yes yeah, I mean, it, uh, hopefully you get that as much as possible, as often well, as possible. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's just so much is shot on stages now that it's yeah, it's it's different. A stage, it's, it's so much heavy lifting for production designers to oh, kind man. of come in. Oh man, is it? Is it? But you know, you can control the environment, and yeah, who wants that? I don't. <laughs> I want chaos. The actors are like, God I want chaos. It. But also something else that's so beautiful about this film that struck me over and over again is I would say 90 to 95% of it is shot in natural light. It's all natural light. And that just moves me. I don't, I don't know why it moves me so much, but as a viewer, it just, it, it does. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I part of that is definitely Hong Kyung Po coming, Pyo coming in with his very specific style. Mm -hmm. There was, a, I mean, there was kind of a, a, a healthy clash between director and cinematographer in the beginning of the making of this uh -huh. movie. Um, because uh, basically, uh, Na Hong Jin said, 
Hong has the purity of a child. He is intuitive and hardly looks away from the viewfinder. I disregarded my storyboards after seeing him search through the woods and enter deep into forbidden places as though he was possessed. We walked into the raining woods, spontaneously coming up with cuts for the film, just like we were jamming to a jazz music uh, album. Oh, wow. End quote. That's and so, cool. so, you know, you're talking about like this natural light thing. Like, Na Hong Jin had storyboards totally ready. Everyone was set, ready to go. And then all of a sudden he's just like, oh, that's not how this guy works. He's like, <laughs> I can't really think that. And then the whole tone, everything kind of changes and, and you know, it does become kind of like a, a jazz collaboration at that mm. point. I'm curious in terms of like, you know, on indie that's movies potentially, maybe more. Do you, as an actor take a look at any of the storyboards that are that are done or are you totally. just kind of out of it no, it depends it depends uh one of the myriad of great joys of working with the cohen brothers is they storyboard everything and then they give you yeah, the storyboard very famously, yes they give you the storyboard for the day with your side so you know exactly what shots you're making oh shit yeah oh shit yeah it's so that's, fucking that's amazing. awesome. It's awesome. And it's so respectful and it's so inclusive and wonderful. It's just so wonderful. And everyone gets home for dinner and it's just awesome. You know, and they, they notoriously vet their actors too. I mean, like a lot of phone calls were made before they started hiring me to people I know to find out. Oh, you know, seriously? Seriously. They want to know like, if you're an Mom. asshole because nobody needs to work with an asshole and there's always an asshole. And nobody needs an asshole, yeah. you know? And they certainly don't, and they don't they don't have to. So they vet, they vet. All the smart people I know vet. Because, you know, we have five minutes to make things. We have no time. And yeah, so, absolutely. you know, get people together that when it's four in the morning and you're drinking bad coffee, you're gonna enjoy, you know what I mean? Yes. So, so uh, yes. Um, I, I, I got very spoiled by them. Um, also Roger Deakins, I, I had the great fortune with True Grit to, to work with him as a cinematographer. And uh, mm. that was, I, I've worked with a couple of like fucking on Lincoln, uh, you know, anyway, on a, a couple of movies, I've had the great fortune and uh, I immediately, you know, I go straight to them. Roger Deakins, I remember one day there, another time that I was deeply affected by the environment, we were shooting this Wild West show sequence outside um, in Texas. And yeah. uh, it was amazing. The whole place was set up, it was amazing. But I remember him looking at this coming out, everyone, there was probably 400 extras for this shot. Um, Cause it was me walking through this Wild West show coming to this one individual. So it was a very wide, long, shot and uh roger just kept you know taking his you finally looking at the sky and he was like in 40 minutes we'll shoot it's gonna be where i want it to be and fuck it in 40 fucking minutes that sky was what you see in the movie which is an oh. absolutely transplendent sky leading down into this shot of this and he, he knows weather, he's a weatherman. He's not just a cinematography, he's like a light magician. And you know, when you have the good fortune to be alongside people like that, and you know, they're willing to share their knowledge, it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's awesome, it's awesome. Because it is a visual medium. It's a totally visual medium. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can't forget that. It's like the spiritual no, thing that you're but, doing as an actor, but it's also the visual. But I think a lot of actors do forget. They just go right here. And, you know, I, I often want to say, like, look around, man. Look around. <laughs> It'll make it a lot easier. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more of the whaling and Elizabeth's career. We'll be uh, right back. Well, Adam, we're still putting out the Greatest Discovery podcast while we wait for season two. What are we doing with these episodes? We've uh, talked to a whole bunch of interesting people like the Wall Street Journal's Ben Fritz and MaximumFun.org's own Danielle Radford. We're kind of using this time to find ways to entertain ourselves and you while we wait for the next season. So catch yourself up with Star Trek Discovery and join us Tuesday on the Greatest Discovery on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Elizabeth Marble. And we're talking about the whaling. Um, okay, so we've talked quite a bit about this um, demon character, um, Kunamara Jun, who uh, is, you know, playing this otherworldly being who, you know, he keeps saying in all of his press conference materials, he was just like, you can't call him my character. It's just a thing. It's like not a living, breathing thing. Um, and he was saying uh, that a lot of people were putting all of that, the idea of like him being the only Japanese person on set. And he was just like, oh, we weren't thinking about that. Mm -hmm, we weren't mm -hmm. trying to put anything. He said, quote, I was the only Japanese on a Korean set, but the character is not defined as Japanese. He's just something different, a strange entity, maybe not even a living thing who comes to this village. And that's what I had in mind when I was performing. Not that I was Japanese, but that mm. I was other. I didn't. I don't know if I would should call it my character because we don't know if it's a living thing. It's an energy almost. But when I was approaching that character, I was thinking a logical approach would not work. So I just really trusted the, the director. And when he said run, I ran, end quote. Um, so, so for him, it became kind of a, a physical performance, yes. you know, it became very, like we were talking about, very primal, where you're out of your brain completely. There's nothing there. Uh -huh. Because I'm like, you were talking earlier about how you were looking at this as uh, as a way to think about playing a demon, uh -huh. to, to think about playing that. And is there any, are you ever completely out of your brain when you're doing it? Or... <laughs> Like, can you only be physical at least? Like, what is, what is the, what's possible uh, when you get into that state? You know, I mean, can, am I out of my brain? Absolutely. Often. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's like free travel acting. You get to go all kinds of places for free and you don't, <laughs> don't have to pay a price. So yeah, I mean, that's why I do it is because it's just like, it is, it's psychic travel. Um, so getting to play a demon, um, I, I can't even begin to express how much fun that was and is. Um, because, and, and I love what he says is it's, it, it, it's, like, it's like weather. It's like you, you are embodying weather. Uh, you are not, it isn't like the usual rules of the game that you are applying. And mm -hmm. um, I, I tend to be a little weird in my thinking anyway. I, I, I get very psychedelic when I approach things. My brain works in a very sort of psychedelic manner. Um, 
So free um, drugs. That's great. There you go. <laughs> that's right. Without any of the chemical poisoning. An easy high. That's right. Uh, but but and yet kind of true um, because I, I do find my my body will alter. My heart rhythms will alter. My temperature will shift. You know, it's it's weird what fucking happens sometimes when you're in different states of being. Um, but playing a demon, um, you know, it's, it's a little, part of it is a little like playing the king. You know, it's, you don't do anything. Everybody else makes mm -hmm. you the king. You, you don't, they make you the king. So when you are the demon, you know, they're the ones scared shitless. You can't run around, you know, you just have a sort of psychic switchblade in your mind that you're constantly pulling out, but you're not doing it. It's just more of an energetic switchblade. Um, but it's, uh, but it is amazing how much, um, because you also have complete freedom when you are representing an archetype, you know, when you mm -hmm. are the physical embodiment of something that is a cornerstone of mythology, of culture, of, you know, you, you have complete freedom and definitely, uh, it does get, uh, placed in a very physical way. Um, for me, a lot of it, uh, centered vocally and in, in the sound of my voice. Um, okay. And that was, really helpful and and that sort of came out of I was in Vancouver shooting this thing it's wild too working for Marvel um I had never worked for Marvel before and I sort yeah. of assumed that it would be a very like this is what you do this is what you wear this is how it's going to be and you know this is the comic book and this is how you do it and my experience was like have at it we're going to see what you come up with <laughs> So I was shocked. I was, I, I was really surprised. And then it was mm -hmm. like, just candy. It was like, okay, you're going to give me complete permission. I'm going to go for it. And, you know, uh, but at the same time, I was watching what was happening in our country from afar. And I found myself sitting in the hotel room, screaming into a pillow for like hours on end, watching, mm -hmm. watching the news and uh, kind of melting down. So I would show up on set sort of physically, just really still with a completely trashed voice, like full exorcist demon voice. <laughs> <laughs> that, that just kind of organically, holistically happened. I feel like, I mean, that's something we've talked about before in the show is that uh, roles like that aren't always easily available to a lot of uh, women actors. Um, you know, there's there's not all these opportunities where you get to go uh, wild, uh, you know, like tits to the glass, like you uh -huh. are, you're gone. Um you know, because so often you just have to play stillness or like reacting in like the least possible bit that you can. And so it's, or crying. It's just nice. Or lots and lots of crying. <laughs> yes. And then, but and if I look at this movie, for instance, and I see like Nong Jin giving like this child actor, this so young woman. great. She's so great. She, she is, it is incredible. She dominates from the moment. She's on screen. She just fucking dominates 
her joy dominates and then her rage dominates and she like when she walks into that police precinct and just like dominates her sergeant father and all the cops in that police precinct this little girl it's it's awesome she's awesome this is something interesting that that i wanted to get into that kind of plays into this um because your career you've had um quite a few supporting characters um and not always the the lead but you're you know like mm-hmm. you're trying to shine in these supporting things and i and i love supporting actors i love because <laughs> it's like it's so much and one of the things that i thought was really interesting is that korea one of korea's largest stars is playing a supporting role mm. in this who doesn't even show up until halfway through and that's something that i like when um huang was cast as il guang it was a kind of made waves of just like mm. why would you put kwok do wan who is a supporting character in as the the protagonist and then this uh-huh. guy who's like the tom cruise of korea doesn't <laughs> come in until halfway um but nahang jin said um with Wong, I noticed when he plays a supporting role, his impact is excellent. When he's in the lead, he suppresses that and shares that energy with this other supporting cast. So it was a hard decision to make, but casting him in the supporting role here did prove more appropriate. I ask all my actors to put away their emotions when they're in front of the camera and act with precise rationality. That's the way to appeal to audiences, end quote. <laughs> I isn't that that's wild that, that he was just like well I want to give you the opportunity to just go like and do everything that you want to do which you might not feel comfortable doing in the lead but mm-hmm. here's where you get to go wild mm. uh, I, I I love hearing that I, I find that absolutely fascinating and energetically fascinating um, and when I watch the movie again which I surely will um i'm going to think about that while i watch it um okay (laughs) because i didn't know that and that's really interesting uh but i i think personally in reference to my my own experience um i think because i come from the theater i just don't really look at things uh as far as supporting or leads or i don't know i just work you know whatever i just go to work mm-hmm. and and i've always sort of had a relationship that i'm like a you know i'm like a plumber i'm i have a skill set i have tools and i go and fix the thing you know whatever the job is i go and i do it um it's it's kind of a practical experience it's a good job it's a fun job but it's not um it's not a <sighs> I don't know. It's. I remember uh, who's the one, Brian Cox once said, you know, that there are just short roles or long roles, <laughs> which I thought was so great. It's so true. It's like, is it a short thing that I'll only be there for a few days, or is it a long thing where I've got to pack for like a couple of months? And that's that's really like how I look at it too. Is it a short job or a long job? It's because you know, because also. Brian Cox is a perfect example. Like that guy was in Manhunter for how long? He shows up mm-hmm. in a fucking movie for like 10 minutes. Yeah. And then like job, he's the thing that you remember. He's the fucking movie. Yeah. He's the movie. <laughs> so, you know, it was a short job, but so fucking, what does that mean? You know? Yeah. And who, I love whoever, thinking about that. Whatever like, that guy was, I can't remember the actor's name who had the long job on that movie. You don't remember him, but he had the long job. <laughs> He had to pack more clothes. He had to pack like, multiple that was more bags. And then he probably had to send that ship home. He had to ship it. 
because he probably got more <laughs> shit because he was there so long. <laughs> does, does your does your your agent and your manager talk to you in a way where it's just like this is like this is an overnight bag this is a <laughs> I think my agent actually has referenced luggage before yes look it's practical that's like, right this <laughs> work here's something <laughs> I want to kind of roll into something that is um a, a little bit esoteric in a sense but but bear with me um because this this is a movie that um Nohongjin started basically as um uh he wanted it to be a single image that kind of flourished into something else and so he said quote as i've mentioned before this movie was a very difficult one for me as i had no knowledge of the subject beforehand i started out with the image of someone far away indistinguishable gradually coming towards you, and the moment they are right in front of your face, when you can see their pores, smell them, and feel their sweat, and what it must feel like when evil attacks invades you, that's it. I started with that image mm. of evil approaching from far away to show its identity to you, end quote. So in keeping mind of this, something that I find fascinating is that when we're talking about these short jobs, long jobs, the impact that you have to have in a short amount of time, like Kunamura Jin, he was not in this that much, but yep. he is terrifying. And sometimes when he's in it, he's in a very, 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 very deep focus. He's he's very far away in the camera, which means that yes. I feel like he, to affect the kind of evil or intention that the director wants, that has to affect your performance, knowing like how far back in the frame you are. Like, like there's... Evil has to be depicted in this one shot. Is there something to you that kind of that speaks to you as an actor of like the kind of degree of di difficulty of like knowing that you have to get something on screen in a very short amount of time and maybe not in, you know, a close up? Mm. Mm. That's that's interesting. Well, I think I think it's it's, you know, probably far more enjoyable Um to not have to, you know, close-ups are close-ups are such a tricky little dance because the 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 canvas is very small, um, and uh, it, they can really fool you. Close-ups can really fool an actor, and they're often a big trap for a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas distance, I think is uh, much more um, pleasurable, uh, freeing, if you're an actor that works holistically, if you use the yeah. whole thing. You know, if you're just here, yeah, that'll be tough sledding. But if you're really willing to work with your body. Um, the other, you know, beautiful thing is if you're in nature as he is in many of those distance shots that then push in yeah. on him everything is moving around him so he can hold stillness and that is extremely powerful it's something Mifuni does a lot in Kurosawa films um, although then once it gets still he will then become the storm and go like crazy which is so awesome um, but that's another sorry digression no um, that's right it's like a transferring of energy of kind of like exactly going from that's one exactly what another. it is that's exactly what it is and that's exactly what i think that actor does in this film is that he he has that kind of sensitivity 
which is, you know, it's something that I, I talk about a lot when I'm on stage. It's like, you become, you become bat-like, you, you get like echolocation, <laughs> like you can hear every fucking thing your audience is doing. Like you have this, these weird little tiny receivers that show up all over you and you start to breathe with them and you start to move with them at times on a good, mm -hmm. good night. And it is an energetic exchange. And I think, you know, it can happen with camera. It can happen, but it, it definitely takes a, a certain type of actor. It takes that kind of actor that can have that kind of energetic exchange and receive it from his surroundings, which he does so beautifully. Like that scene when he's under the waterfall, when he's preparing for the exorcism and he moves his body and you just see him taking in the water and Oh, it's it's magnificent. I mean, we we get to see you in a waterfall or in in Hellstrom. Oh right? yeah, like it's just... the opening shot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bathing. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. you're spoiling it. <laughs> Sorry, I know Marvel's going to kill me. Uh, Elizabeth, we have to wrap up, but I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And uh, I want to make sure that everyone uh, checks out Hellstrom when it comes out. That's going to be on Hulu in the fall. And uh, also uh, News of the World is going to be coming out in the fall. And um, those are two lovely projects that you should look for from Elizabeth. Uh, is there anything else that you need to plug? No, no. Okay. Uh, yes. Wonderful. Everyone, yes. vote. Yes, you should vote. Vote. Everyone should November vote. November 3rd, please vote. <laughs> or before that. Or before, before that. that. Absolutely, but only once. <laughs> if you can. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at switchbladesisters at maximumfun.org. And please check out our Facebook group too. That's facebook.com slash groups slash switchbladesisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.